Welcome to Food Safety University and this week's podcast. Today we have the first of two episodes on money mindset with Erin Pirro, and we are super excited to be bringing this uh, kind of at the end of the year because it's going to give you lots of great stuff to think about. Um, there'll be a way to contact Erin and do, get a download at the end of the podcast, and that's also linked in the show notes. So, as always, Grab your notebooks and your pens and get ready to think and write because we've got a great podcast for you today. Welcome to Food Safety University. I'm Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele, and this is the one podcast where you can get everything you need to know about food safety and how to run a food manufacturing plant for all of those small and local food manufacturers. If you are into local and sustainable food and agriculture, this is the podcast for you. Every week we cover new and original ideas around how to get the most out of your HACCP planning and how to get your plant up and running and continue running in a way that fulfills your dreams. So grab a pen and paper because every week you're going to need it. See you on the inside. Welcome, everybody. I am so happy you could join us on this week's episode of the podcast. And today I am completely delighted to have my friend and colleague, Erin Pirro, another nutmegger. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, it means we're from Connecticut. <laughs> um, and Erin uh, and I have been in contact more or less uh, since we met at a conference like six or seven years ago or something. It's been that long, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, she and I recently reconnected after we brought our head up uh, after the pandemic, talking about supply chains and what's going on in meat processing and all that sort of stuff. And I will let Erin take it from there and she will tell you why she's involved in all of that sort of stuff. So Erin, welcome to the podcast and want you to introduce yourself. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. Uh, as you said, my name is Erin Pirro and I'm a farm business consultant. So my job is to help businesses run even better. And I do that by concentrating on the numbers and the information management side of things. And the reason that I'm so particularly interested in this and because and that you and I have a connection is that my family has a small farm. We raise sheep and sell lamb. So this is near and dear to our hearts. And my sister is a trained food scientist, too. So when I get you two connected, you'll have even more to talk about. I know, because nobody can nerd out about food science then. <laughs> then people like me when we're talking about small meat. So Aaron and I, we were talking and we were talking about the things that stop small businesses, especially meat processing businesses, and farmers and ranchers um, along the supply chain and why why the supply chain looks like it looks, why there are not more small meat plants um, and how that affects farmers like her family. Um, and what are, what are some of the options? And what we really lit in on was it's actually a conversation about money mindset. And so over the podcasts that Erin's going to be on for, we're going to be talking about some real key questions about money mindset. Okay, and so as y'all know, you should always have a pen and paper when you listen to Dr. P. <laughs> this is not less true when Erin comes on the podcast. <laughs> and so we're going to, we have a set of questions to go over and we're going to be telling stories and doing a deep dive into what these, um, into how these, how these questions affect our lives, um, our clients' lives and ways for you to really dig deep into your money mindset. 
So um, with that, let's start with like talking about money discussions in the family. So, so Aaron, Aaron, like launch us into that conversation. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So when I start working with a farm family, a lot of the ideas that we've gathered or hold about our businesses were formed early in our lives. And I always joke, only half joking, actually, when I'm talking about a farm transition plan, when you're the younger generation and you've heard what kind of work there is on a farm for your entire life and what kind of work is there on a farm, Michelle? Um, hard work. Hard work. <laughs> and the hours yeah. are? Um, to sun up to sunset. <laughs> we say sun up to sun up, right? Long hours. <laughs> and, and how's the pay? Bad. <laughs> so I say that's a heck of a sales pitch. If you're trying to encourage people to come work for you and take on your business, we need to change that. And once we start to think of it that way about, okay, what can we do to make this not only a fantastic place to work? Because no agriculturist I know is afraid of long hours and hard work, and they deserve to be compensated for that, compensated well for that. And in order to do that, we need to think about our business, not just as something that we do, but something that is a tool to get us where we want to go and the same for others so that we can build a good team to accomplish all of these amazing things that we have in our plans. And a lot of those ideas that we have about money, including that, well, the pay's going to stink, come from what we've heard our entire lives. So I want to challenge you to think back to when you were small, what did you hear? What do you remember other people in your family talking about the business and about money? Right. Uh, so those are things that we've all heard, like money doesn't grow on trees, uh, right? You've got to work hard uh, to make money, right? Um, lots of people have heard stuff about how terrible rich people are, you know, you know, and really castigating rich people. I mean, it's pretty easy in Connecticut. I'm not going to lie. There are some really rich people in Connecticut that <laughs> maybe don't husband their money the way we might want. <laughs> but, you know, I was reading this question and I was thinking about it because I've done a ton of money mindset work um, as I have grown my business because entrepreneurship will do that to you. Right. And I very clearly remember we were sitting around the kitchen table in Newtown, right? And it was like, I don't know, some random Tuesday after school. And, and we were either just getting dinner on the table or, or had just gotten dinner on the table. And um, we were playing what would happen if you won the lottery, um, right? Like, what would we do if we won the lottery? And my brother and I very innocently were just saying, well, you know, we would do this and we would do this and we would do this. Uh, what would it's you hard, do? Lots of travel. Yes. Right. Right. Lots of, you know, like lots of, lots of travel. I love to travel. Coronavirus has been really hard. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, like having those conversations super innocently and I am not going to lie, my father lost it. And he used that conversation as an indictment of how he was supporting the family. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it wasn't until years later where I recognized how many lessons I learned in that five minutes of conversation and hours worth of like 
fighting. Uh, and like negative emotion in the family. Uh, and what I'm hearing there are tones of appreciation or lack thereof, but then also scolding, demeaning, right? And almost some shame probably. And when all of those things come together, nobody wants to be in that room. Right. That uh, shuts down any path to conversation that you might have next when the goal is probably to open it up or should be to open it up so that you can have more of those conversations. And that's hard to do after all that negative emotion comes out. Right. And it's hard to, it's hard to pick up. It's hard to, you know, but then what I got thinking after that is, is if that was, you know, kind of like the big knockdown drag out fight, how many times in my childhood, and I'm not going to lie, I mean, I grew up upper middle class in Fairfield County, Connecticut. You know, I went to a private college that was paid for by my grandparents. Like I was, a, I, you know, I'm a trust fund baby, you can trust me. Um, and, <laughs> you know, um, how many small conversations was I subjected to where money was always um, very, very hard full of negative emotion. You know what I mean? And, and imagine what happens in families that have less money than we have. Sure. Well, think back to the idea of an allowance, right? I think it was intended to help you budget as a young person learning. Mm -hmm. However, what did you have to do for that money? We had to work for it. Like we had a whole list of things that we were supposed to do to work for that money. And it's different in every family. And if you tie some kind of input to output, meaning I put in the effort and I complete the thing and I get the money for that, right? That's that's one type of mindset versus, oh, it just shows up. Right. Monday again, I get another 10 bucks or whatever the, the amount is. That creates a different expectation around money, one where you earn it versus one where you're entitled to it. And also gives you the drive to think about, if I do more, there's a potential for me to get more. Maybe not necessarily working harder, but working smarter versus, well, it just shows up. I don't really have any impact on this, so there's not much I can do about it. Right. Mm. Yeah. And there it's, it's fascinating when we think of those small conversations and those things that we do, you know, like we're parenting, we're parenting teenagers and um, actually by law, because we're becoming foster parents, which I think I told you um, by law, when the kids become foster parents, the state gives them an allowance. So so your foster child will get an allowance. Mm -hmm. And so I, I mean, you know, and they make a big deal about treating everybody equally. So I can't, the foster kid's not going to get an allowance and my kid's not, and, and, and my kids not get an allowance at the same age. Right. Um, and it's because they need foster kids to learn these basic life skills. Everybody needs these basic life skills. Everybody needs, uh, right. Everybody needs these skills. Um, so what are, so what are maybe some ways to like, think about your family conversations about money? Um, Well, I think one, approach it from a place of curiosity. So I'm always curious about, did your family even talk about money or was it a big secret? Because Mm -hmm. if it's a big secret and I have a friend who worries about their father in his older age and they don't know if he has $5 or $5 million and if it's in a tin can in the backyard or squirreled away somewhere that nobody knows anything about, um, but they never had those conversations. And that means it's very difficult to plan because we don't know where we're starting from. Right. So I can give you directions, but I don't know where you're coming from. So I might 
send you in the wrong, down the wrong path. That can be very dangerous. But if it's a question of, hey, what are your goals around that involve money? You know, whether that's as a young person, I want to buy a car and be able to afford insurance. I want to start a business. I want to make sure I have enough cushion to last me through the first year. I'm ready to expand my business and I want to be able to have enough money to put down on the project so that my loan payments aren't going to be insurmountable, right? Those are all, I think, really good questions that not only businesses, but families can be talking about regularly. And you're, you gave an example of that question being asked, how can we direct it in a positive way rather than shutting it down? Right. So for instance, I set my goal. Okay, what's it going to take to achieve that goal? Right, I want to go on the senior trip in high school. Okay, how much money is it going to take? Okay, where can you earn that money? What can you do? How much will you earn per hour? How many hours is that going to be? Is that reasonable? Five hours a week for the entire semester will earn you enough to pay for half of the trip. Is that doable? And when you break things down into smaller pieces and put them in that perspective, all of a sudden, it's a whole lot more manageable. Right. And I think a lot of, you know, I actually know that you say that I've been thinking about all the money conversations I've been having with my clients recently. And I feel like the bigger the numbers, the more the intense, the emotions, you know what I mean? And like, so we talk about, you know, there are EIDL loans that are coming out, you know, you were just having a thing with PPP. Um, people are getting investors, people are, you know, people have gone through friends, family fools rounds, as we say, you know. Um, and I feel like there is so much shame uh, that comes up. Uh, and I just wonder how much of it is tied to um, not being used to like dealing with large numbers. You know, you, you're talking about growing or scaling your business. I mean, that's going to often take hundreds of thousands of dollars that most people were like, I, I could buy a house for that, uh, you know, or more, right. You know, it's not unusual to be in the meat business and talking six figures, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, the last ask I did was for $25 million with $10 million of working capital. And it's not going to get any smaller, right? We're hearing everywhere, yeah. not just about the supply chain crunch, but the pricing and the way inflation's going. And every year things are going to get more expensive. That's pretty much a given. So what can we do in our businesses to get comfortable enough to continue while those numbers are smaller? And that may mean whatever it is today, it's smaller than it's going to be next year at this time or five years down the road. I heard this really great quote. I was listening to a Tiny Desk concert. Yo-Yo Ma was playing and he said something to the effect of, it's not painful to learn something new when you do it incrementally. Right. Mm -hmm. So right. a little bit to start exploring, get used to, and then we can have the next conversation that builds on that. And yeah. the next one builds on that. And yeah, bigger numbers get scarier, but the math is still the same. Right. And I think that, you know, what I talk to my, my clients about is being brave to your cash flow, you know, and it's, a, I mean, I really haven't gone through it myself, you know, I mean, I gave everybody my background with money, right? <laughs> money is something that is always has intense emotions, 
involved with it. And there are always big discussions about money and big, big, big emotions around money in my house. Right. And so that's how I grew up. And so every time, even though I was making money, yeah, I was petrified about opening my budget. Uh, How much money did I make this month? How much like, and I was just so accustomed to that, like really intense emotion. I am not kidding. It took three years uh, for me to be really super brave to my cash flow and be like, think, oh, there it is. <laughs> well, it's a tricky thing, right? In agriculture, the business is often seasonal, which means sometimes we have plenty of money and sometimes we don't have nearly enough. I cannot tell you how many times I get an email that's timestamped three o'clock in the morning in February and it says, I don't know how I'm going to make payroll this week. Right. That's a place no one, of, none of us want to be. And it showed up in many of our lives in other places. You know, I can remember back to college where, okay, there's a huge tuition payment due. How many sheep do I have to shear in order to be able to make that payment? Because this is on me. Right. And if I don't get that paid by this particular time, I'm not going to have a place to live or to study or to continue this. And it's going to be a lot harder to get back in. So that pressure is real. And, right. mm. and the one thing that we can do proactively is plan for this. Mm-hmm. We know these things are coming. They're not a surprise. And the sooner we start to get our head around it, even though it's much more comfortable, right, to put on Netflix and binge about something, the sooner we can start that plan, the more time we have to react, right, and course correct and do the things that we know we need to do. Because I don't know about you, but no plan I've ever put together worked exactly as I wrote it down. Well, as we as we say in the army, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Right. Right. Even going to work in the morning, there's some unexpected construction or a detour that you weren't planning on or a traffic jam. Whatever it is, it's not exactly as it was intended to be in your mind. So let's think about the different options for this. How can we build a cushion so this doesn't happen again, so that you have something to draw on for payroll? How do we make sure there's enough in the pipeline so that if college tuition is due, it's not a surprise and you have enough time to accomplish that earning? You're planning to expand. What's it realistically going to cost? And what's a cushion for overruns? Because I don't know any construction project that's happened according to budget ever. Right. And that's just a reality of life. So the quicker we expect that, the more we can build in the tools to deal with that and make it happen successfully. Right. Right. And I think that so those steps of like breaking it into small chunks. uh, Right. Um, I think being brave to it and then being realistic about it. You know, I mean, me building being brave to my cash flow took three years. This is, you know, while, you know, change can be magical and happen overnight. I don't think it happens that way for most people because no, I think it's gradually getting used to what's there. So if you can concentrate on the fact that there are $435 in my checking account, right? Mm. That is a fact that is not good. That is not bad. It just is. Mm-hmm. Now, what do I want to do with that $435? How will that be changing in the next week, the next month, the next year? And if I need it to be more than $435, what are the different ways to get there? How much more than $435? Because then it becomes a math problem. And if you don't like math, don't worry, we got your back. (laughs) 
right? Uh, right. Because then that's the next thing that happens to people that they get all of a sudden, then they have to get into math problems. And then not only are they having like these really tense money conversations, but then all of a sudden the math thing comes into it. <laughs> Because I'm guessing not everybody is like you and me, like I do to soothe myself. I do what's called profit algebra. <laughs> How many of these do I have to sell to become a millionaire? <laughs> and I find profit algebra very soothing. <laughs> well, I had lunch with a friend who was making um, meat rubs and they were trying to figure out, all right, what is the cost to know if we're pricing it appropriately? And she said, there's just so much data to gather I don't know how to get my head around it all. Never mind my arms around all the different pieces of paper. And you know what? I just don't want to deal with it. And I think that somehow shines a light on the real issue, which is, okay, how do I even get started? It's not even that I'm afraid of math. She's brilliant at math. It's just the, I got a million things I need to do today and gather all these invoices so that I can figure out how much I spent on this batch is just not the thing I really want to be spending right Uh, right I mean that is I you know I totally understand and when I talk about KPIs and stuff we talk about you know your cost of goods sold your labor cost of goods sold and then when you're adding pricing to it you got to add perceived value Uh, you know and when people are like I have no idea what is everybody else charging and then they price like that and then they wonder why (laughs) (laughs) their balance sheet or their revenue or their profit and loss doesn't look the way that they want it to look is because they, they weren't brave to, you know, or tolerance of sitting down and looking at the invoices. Um, You mentioned that one. My pet peeve is what would you pay for it personally? Don't ever, ever ask that question under any circumstances, because as my friend Stephanie says, they farm outside of Montreal as farmers, we have deep pockets and short arms which means we would never pay anyone for something that we could do for ourselves. So we are not good judges of our own product and what it's worth. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like that is, that is so true. That is so, so true. Because if you think about it, entrepreneurs are all like, dude, I can totally do this myself. Mm -hmm. I don't need you to do this. I can totally do it myself. Right. What thing have you ever really done yourself and only yourself? Right. Uh, right. Exactly. And this is how this is how farmers end up with three pigs and 60 chickens and 120 ducks and 180 turkeys because they're like, oh, my God, can you they are they are charging 550 a pound for turkeys. I could totally do that. Uh, right. And then they get hornswoggled into a minimum order of like 200 turkeys and then 10% die. <laughs> Wait, or even do the math on if this is your holiday at this time of year, I work with several Christmas tree farms and think about that. Whatever the price may be, say it's 50 bucks, say it's 75 bucks, you pick. But at $50 a tree, how many trees are you likely to sell? And if it's a hundred trees, wow, that's $5,000. That's a lot of work for five years. A crop that's going to take you seven or eight years to grow. Right. And even if it's four times that, you know, we're talking maybe the property taxes for the year. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, and so these are the sorts of things like when you get brave to the numbers and you start thinking about them as numbers and not good or bad, you can do a comparison of seven to eight years however many hours a year that go into, I mean, you know, Christmas trees don't take a whole lot of, uh, 
a whole lot of tending, you know. Um, <laughs> I think I've got some people that would like you to come shear with them in July. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas trees, sheep. <laughs> Earlier well, in the year. Different levels of work. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. It gives you the opportunity to compare one opportunity with another and figure out what am I going to have to do to make this a reality? And if those numbers work out such that this makes sense, yes, it's totally achievable, then, okay, that's the one I want to take as opposed to this one where I'm going to need to sell more Christmas trees than I had room for or mm -hmm. more turkeys than I had room for in order to make the facility pay for itself. Now I know before I poured concrete. That's right. what I mean. Right. And as we are very fond of saying, and we'll kind of like wrap it up here um, and then and then we'll continue this conversation. But it is way easier to think first and pour concrete second. Uh, you know, I am wicked expensive after the concrete has been poured. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Erin, thank you so much for, for this intro part of this conversation talking about um, what, how our families talked about money when we were little and how that impacts our discussions today and maybe some of the things that we can do about it. So tell me, Erin, if people want to find out more about you, where can they go? Mm -hmm. They can go to erinpiro.com and up there I've thrown a worksheet for us. If you'd like to explore your money mindsets even further, you can download a quick worksheet with some key questions on it at plan.erinpiro.com forward slash money mindsets. And those are really great discussion questions. Print one out for your entire family, answer them, and then compare notes. All Just right. And that's started. Okay, so we're going to totally link to that in the show notes. But if you're, it, do not be typing and driving if you're listening to this in the car. Um, but it's plan.erinpiro, and that's P I R R O dot com slash money mindsets. Money mindsets, plural. Okay, we will totally link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Erin, for joining us on this lovely podcast. And we will uh, continue the conversation. Um, look forward to it. Great to talk to you as always. Thanks so much for listening to the Food Safety University podcast. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, I want you to go to dirigofoodsafety.com and go check out all the things that we have. If you haven't gotten your HACCP download, go get that or book a call with me and let's talk about getting you into Food Safety University. I'll see you on the inside.